All right, so I'm going to start with a series. I'm going to start in an unusual way. I'm going to start with a series of apologies. Is that okay? Okay, I'm going to do it anyway, whether or not you think it's okay. Um, I actually wrote them down so I wouldn't forget them. Okay, the first thing I want to apologize for here is that this has been a unique year, 2015, because this is the year of the general conference session. And uh, for those of you that are Seventh-day Adventists, you know that the general conference meets in session every five years, and this is one of those years. So I was away a little longer than I would have normally been because of the general conference. In addition to that, we had a wonderfully large donation that was made to Arise and to Light Bears, a donation approaching half a million dollars, that enabled us to record all of the Arise programs professionally. It's something that we've wanted to do for more than a decade, and uh, we're in the midst of it right now. And I've already been away for two weeks, and tomorrow I leave again for four weeks. Now, you guys make it really easy and kind of hard on me because whenever I leave and I come back, things are going great. So you're not really incentivizing my sticking around, is what I'm saying here. Um, But anyway, I'm leaving again, so I want to begin by apologizing that this year I'm gone a little bit more than normal because of the general conference session. I preached there and spent some time there, and also because of the nature of the recordings in the U.S., Uh, because we have this unique opportunity to professionally record the Arise program. And our vision, our goal is, hopefully, to be able to make the Arise program, which right now was really only available to just a very small segment of the population that could take three or four months off. But we get literally thousands and thousands of inquiries. People say, can you make it available online? Can you make the curriculum available in some other way? And we now have an opportunity to do that because of this wonderful donation that we received. And so because of that, we have to record every Arise class that we have. And uh, that's happening this year. So I have to be gone just a little bit more. So I don't know if this is good news or bad news. For some of you, it's probably really good news. And others, like my wife... She says, ostensibly, it's bad news that I'll be away. Um, But I'll be leaving tomorrow back to the United States, and so I want to apologize for my absence. I promised to return home to Australia. Uh, Just this morning when I was uh, sending out a couple tweets on my Twitter account, one of the things that I said was, there are spiders the size of my hand that live in my house, And there is a nine-foot snake that lives in my roof, and it's somehow my new normal. And then I just said simply, Australia makes you tougher. And uh, so I'm, I'm I'm feeling like Australia is increasingly home. So I'll be gone for a few weeks. I want to apologize for that. Uh, Now I want to apologize for last Sabbath's sermon. Not for the content of the sermon, but because... And we're not quite sure who done it. This is an unsolved mystery. But because of a technical problem, we were unable to record last Sabbath's sermon. Which is a real bummer because uh, there were a lot of people that expressed a real positivity toward the presentation. Especially uh, the fact that it was quite practical in addressing topics like pornography and alcohol and lust. Things that, that are not often so directly addressed from the front. And I was really excited about the sermon, um, just that I could have it out there. But unfortunately, it wasn't recorded. So anyway, we apologize on behalf of last Sabbath's sermon. Uh, The blame lies somewhere between Phil Grolamond and Nathan Brosman. They're still still debating. So, uh, or maybe they've come up with a conspiracy theory that there was a sabotage of some sort. And then I want to apologize for this Sabbath sermon. In advance, because I went to a little cafe that will remain nameless Wednesday afternoon, and uh, the only reason that I had any time to go to that cafe was that I had a doctor's appointment to go get the final word on my knee, and I had forgotten about this really inconvenient time change switch thing that happens here, and uh, completely nonsensical, indefensible, ridiculous time change. Anyway, that's another story. So I ended up being an hour early for my doctor's appointment. I thought, well, man, I'm not just going to go sit at the doctor's office for an hour. I'll go to this lovely little cafe named Beep. And so I went to this lovely little cafe, and I ordered something. That was Wednesday afternoon. And uh, up until the present time, I have been absolutely stricken with food poisoning 
And we'll just say it's been a very messy week. How would that be? <laughs> and so I have not had uh, even a third of the time that I would have liked to have had to prepare for today's sermon. So a messy week might make for a messy sermon. And uh, if I suddenly sprint out of here, you'll know why. <laughs> Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. With that picture in your mind... Let's open our Bible to the book of 1 Samuel. <laughs> My wife is embarrassed right now, but it all started 15 years ago when she married me. All right, let's catch up to where we're at. We've got a lot of important things to talk about today, and even though I might be a little underprepared, I was up this morning. The Lord Jesus woke me up at 3.30 this morning. My wife will tell you that's very unusual. I'm a sleeper. I love to sleep. I set my alarm for 5.30 this morning to try to get a few hours of last-minute study. Bing! I was wide awake at 3.30, and the Lord gave me some really great things in the text, and I can't wait to share them. It might not be as polished as I wish it would otherwise be. But let's sort of pick up where we were at last week. I've called today's message uh, on the spur of the moment, A Strong Woman and Another Weak Man. Uh, another Weak Man is a reference to last Sabbath's sermon about Samson, who was the strongest, weakest man. He was a superhero, as it were, in his physicality and in his physique, but in his control over his own emotions, in his control over his lustful thoughts, he was a, he was a wimp. He was a weak man. And uh, we encounter here, again, in the text, as we transition from land into kings. So look at the chapters that we've gone through. Beginning, family, exodus, land, four chapters now behind us. And today is our first chapter on kings, and we're going to be talking today about the first king, who was another apparently, ostensibly strong man. But turns out, in fact, like Samson, though different, but, but similar in some regards, to be a weak man. Um, but we're also going to talk about a strong woman. So today, a strong woman and another weak man. And this is where the book of Judges leaves us. As we draw to the end of the book of Judges, and we spent three sermons on, on the book of Judges, and you know those were difficult sermons because it's a difficult passage of Scripture, a difficult book, and the sort of uh, low point in Israel's history, or one of the major low points in Israel's history, is encapsulated in that 21-chapter book. Well, as the author of Judges, whoever it may have been, is drawing the book to a close, he begins to make mention of this idea of the absence of a king in Israel. There was no king. There was no king. Let's just look at a few of those. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's very similar to the very last verse of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is why we end up with a book that is so descriptively repulsive and so prescriptively vacuous. Um, Judges chapter 18, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel, the author wants us to know. Judges 19, verse 1, and it came to pass in those days there was no king in Israel. So notice how there's sort of a momentum picking up. There's 21 chapters in Judges, and through the first 16 chapters, no mention is made of the absence of a king. But as soon as we get to 17, 18, 19, the author of Judges feels compelled to let us know, hey, there was no king Hey, there was no king. Everyone what was, was doing what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. And then finally, the last verse here of Judges, Judges 21, 25. In, there, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So four times. No king, no king, no king, no king. Now, this could be for one of two reasons. It's possible that the author of Judges himself had bought into the idea that Israel desperately needed a king. Or it's possible that he's simply letting us know that Israel believed that they desperately needed a king. But we leave Judges, and then you have, of course, the little book of Ruth, which we're going to spend no time on now, maybe a little bit later, and we end up in 1 Samuel. Now, I want to give you sort of a, an analogy here, a, a picture in your mind, if I can, that, that will help you to understand this transition. Now, we've not been through that many books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So we're really only through seven books, and then now we come into 1 Samuel, right, which is now our eighth book in terms of study. But I want to paint a picture in your mind. And it's of a large mountain with a long, low, flat valley, and then another large mountain. Okay, so two large mountain peaks and a long, low, 
flat valley in between. That long, low, flat valley is represented by, or represents rather, the book of Judges. That period of almost 500 years, almost half a millennium, between the ministries of Joshua and Moses, okay, and the ministry of Samuel, okay? So I want you to have this sort of uh, geologic picture in your mind of two towering peaks and either of them on opposite sides of a very low depression in the history of Israel. And we begin over there with, of course, the ministry of Moses there in Exodus as he leads the children of Israel out. Moses then passes the baton to Joshua. And so in a way, this first peak is almost like a twin peak. There's the amazing ministry of Moses, which is basically unequaled in the entire Old Testament. And then there is the ministry of Joshua, which was, was very synchronous and, com- and uh, complementary to the ministry of, of Moses. And so this towering twin peak of the ministry of Moses and Joshua. Then that long, flat valley of judges that we've just mentioned, 450 years of wasteland, absolute wasteland, some of the toughest and most difficult, problematic passages in all of Scripture. And then now we come to 1 Samuel. And we're introduced in 1 Samuel to another towering peak, a peak that towers every bit as high as the peak of Moses and Joshua. It's like, it's like, Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the, the Israelites might have been able to look back with a kind of nostalgia on the great leaders and men that possessed real wisdom and a real heart and a real passion for God. They would have reminisced and they would have longed for the good old days when they had people like Moses and Joshua, right? But then there was this long period of the judges where your best heroes were people like Gideon who were faulty and, and uh, uh, frail men. Of course, Moses and Joshua were faulty and frail as well in their own right, but nothing like what we experience in Judges. We have people like Jephthah. If Jephthah is our hero, we're living a very sad story. If Samson is our hero, we're living a very sad story. And so we go through that long depression, and then we come here. And like a like a breath of fresh mountain air, we are exposed again to another towering peak, a man of conviction, a man of confidence, a man who is filled with the spirit of man of humility, Samuel. But here's a remarkable thing. We're not introduced to Samuel. We are introduced to Samuel's mother. Now, with that in mind, I want to sort of give you a powerful little insight, and this was the thing that the Lord just deeply impressed me with. In these two massive peaks that bookend this darkest period in Israel's history up to this point are not only these towering men, Moses, Joshua, and Samuel, but a godly mother. In the case of Moses, Jochebed, a godly mother. There is no Moses without the motherly, wonderful, godly, prayerful way and the the context with which she raised him. We don't have a Moses without a Jochebed. And we don't have a Samuel without a Hannah. And when we are introduced to Samuel, when it comes time for God to, as it were, rescue his people from the abyss of the book of Judges, He does it through the humble prayer of a woman named Hannah. And we've had opportunity to talk about this before, but I want to direct your attention to where we are at in the the sort of scheme here, the the picture as we prepare to transition into the first king. These are the later judges, chapters 13 to 21. We reviewed this slide last week. Samson judged Israel 20 years. Then Eli judged Israel 40 years. We're introduced to him in 1 Samuel. We'll talk briefly about him today. Samuel judged Israel all of his life. We don't know exactly how long that was. And then Samuel's sons judged for a brief time, but soon thereafter, Saul was anointed as king. And that's what we're going to talk about today. With that in mind, I want you to look at this quotation here. The day of God will reveal, the day of God alone will reveal how much the world owes to who. What are those next two words? Why don't you say them with a little bit of enthusiasm, with Godly mothers, man, that's like, your enthusiasm is like dead American churches. It's just like, the, you just have to adjust the scale. It was so weird when I was just back in the U.S. and I was preaching, I, I was like, man, these people keep interrupting me. Don't they know they're supposed to be quiet when I'm preaching, right? 
So I'm, I'm like, I'm in a culture shock here when I say with enthusiasm and, and you muster something that like almost is like a heartbeat. So good for you. That's great. I want to hold you to your own standard. And by your standard, that was at least an eight. Okay. So anyway, here's the point. The, the day of God alone will reveal how much the world owes to godly mothers. Can at least the mother say amen to that? Okay. And can the father say amen to that? Now, what I want to do is give you the context of that whole quotation. And remarkably, that that quotation there from the pen of Ellen White comes from an article titled, The Early Life of Samuel. The Early Life of Samuel, written all the way back in 1881. Now, look at the force of this quotation and the strength with which she writes, and the beauty as well, I might add. The day of God will reveal how much the world owes to godly mothers for men who have been unflinching advocates of truth and reform. Let me just pause there. Okay, so here's the Moses and here's the Joshua, right? They're the ones that are front and center. They factor huge into scripture. They factor huge into the history and into the trajectory of Israel. These were giant men. Samuel's gonna be a giant man. We're gonna learn today that Samuel is one of the, I think the only person, I better be careful, I think he's the only person in all of scripture that occupied this unique threefold office. Samuel was a prophet, Samuel was a judge, and Samuel was a priest. I mean, this dude has got a heavy load on him. He is, I mean, Moses wasn't a priest. Samuel is a priest. Moses was a prophet, but Moses wasn't a judge. In a sense, he was a judge. He wasn't one of the judges proper. So, so here's this giant of a man, Samuel, and there are those giants of men, Moses and Joshua. But, no, but notice what the quotation says here. Where do these giant men come from? from godly mothers. Look at that. The day of God will reveal how much the world owes to godly mothers. For what? For the men who have been unflinching advocates of truth and reform. Men who have been bold to do and dare. Who have stood unshaken amid trials and temptations. Men who chose the high and holy interests of truth and the glory of God before worldly honor or life itself. When the judgment shall sit and the books will be opened, When the well done of the great judge is pronounced, that's Jesus, and the crown of immortal glory is placed upon the brow of the victor, many will raise their crowns. Look at this. Many will raise their crowns in the sight of the assembled universe and pointing to their, what? Say it with me. Their mother. They will say, she made me all I am through the grace of God. Her instruction, her prayers have blessed have been blessed to my eternal salvation. You don't get a Moses without a Jochebed and you don't get a Samuel without a Hannah. When, when, When it finally comes time for the Bible story to begin to slowly come out of this massive depression known as the period of the judges, it doesn't, it doesn't begin right with Samuel, though that could have happened. The author of Samuel, whoever he may have been, could have just launched right into the story of Samuel where he's, where he's already the judge and where he's already the priest and where he's already a prophet. No. First Samuel opens humbly and seemingly innocuously with a woman who is barren, praying and pleading and praying and pleading and praying and pleading. And on that point, On that point right there, I want to draw several things to your attention. Let's just pick it up in verse 8. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 8. Join me there. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat and why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, and Eli the priest was sitting by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and Echoes of Samson here, no razor will come upon his head. And it happened as she was continually praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. And Eli, the priest, actually sees the passion and the ethos with which she prays, and he assumes, mistakenly, that she's drunk. 
She, she was just so passionate and so animated in her prayer, she, she looked like she was a little bit off of, out of her tree. And so Eli rebukes her. He, he rebukes her. He says, woman, lay off the bottle. Lay off the bottle, woman. And she responds and says, no, 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 you've misread the situation. No, 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 no. It's not that I have the presence of alcohol in my system. It's that I have the absence of a son. I long to have a child. In fact, I've just made a vow before the Lord, Eli. I've made a vow that if God would give me a son, I would turn him back over full time to the work of God. And uh, Eli must have been at least somewhat embarrassed by his um, misapprehension of the situation. And he says, be it unto you according as the Lord's will. And sends her on her way and she becomes pregnant. Now, one of the most beautiful prayers that's recorded in all of Scripture is the prayer of Hannah after she conceives and when she weans Samuel, which means gift of God. Right? We have a couple Samuels in this church. Did you know your name means gift of God? When the gift of God showed up, she, she gives this astonishingly beautiful prayer. Let me just read you a little bit of it. I want to remind you again. This mountain of Samuel, this, this model of a man, this, this, this uh, a, a, a man who stands tall on the same sort of level as a, as a Moses and a Joshua, this man doesn't just emerge from nowhere. He emerges from a godly, praying, humble, committed woman. Oh, the world does not know what it owes to godly mothers. The author of 1 Samuel was so impressed with Hannah's contribution that he felt that the story could not be introduced. He can't tell the story of Saul without telling the story of Samuel, and he can't tell the story of Samuel without telling the story of Hannah. And Hannah prays this prayer. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord for there is no one besides you. Many praise songs have been inspired, by the way, by this prayer. Nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumble are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Two more verses. Let's just finish it up. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man will prevail. We saw that with Samson. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will be the true judge. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Verse 11, then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. I don't know about you, but my prayers do not sound like that. Do your prayers sound like that? I would be embarrassed if one of my prayers was recorded in Scripture. It would be a stumbling, stammering mess of the same thing that I said day before yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and the day before that and the day before that. Have you ever found that your prayers tend to lack originality? You just fall into these patterns of saying the same thing. There have been numerous times where God has said, God, forgive me. I know I've prayed that prayer a hundred times. Let me start over. And I literally try to search for words that I've never used before in prayer. And it's not easy. You get into this sort of rote habit of just, Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy, for your kindness. I love you so much. It's a privilege to be alive today. I thank you. For, it's just like, right? And you have your own little, but Hannah, oh, Hannah, in a, in a moment here of prophetic utterance and, and indescribable ecstatic joy, she just opens her heart and, and notice it's not, God, can I have more? Can I have more? She's just praising God for who he is, praising him for what he's done and praising him for what he's gonna do. This is an awesome prayer. And the author of 1 Samuel just feels like, man, there's no way I could introduce you to Samuel without introducing you to his mother. Maybe you've heard the old saying that behind every good man is a surprised woman. Right? Perhaps that's nowhere truer than in the case of mothers. Godly, praying mothers. Take a look at this. 
How about a tour de force, just for the first, through the first few chapters of 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, we read this. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Verse 12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. This is the beautiful prayer that we just read a moment ago. So we are introduced not just to a godly woman in some nebulous sense. Oh, she was a godly woman. She was nice to her neighbors, and she sent Christmas cards every year, and she, when, you know, the, when her children brought, you know, extra friends home, she cooked them a little extra food. Okay, all of that's fine and good, and that is part of being a mother, and I wouldn't diminish the significance of that, but What specifically are we introduced to, what specific aspect of her character and of her behavior are we introduced to in Hannah's life that defined her as a godly woman? What is it? It's a gimme. She was a praying mother. Now check this out. When we then continue to read through the sometimes beautiful and often tragic book of Samuel, guess what one of the most powerful and profound and, and, and uh, significant contributions is that Samuel makes to Israel. Take a guess. He prays for them. Again and again and again, we are introduced to Samuel as praying for the people. As, and not just these little, you know, sort of quasi-mentions of Samuel's prayer. These are giant mentions of giant prayers at crucial junctures in Israel's history. And we're going to get there in just a second. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Samuel has been delivered to Eli. And he remains there in the service of the Lord. It's remarkable that God would trust Samuel to Eli because one of the things, one of the things that we are one of the things that's revealed to us about Eli is that he was a bad dad. Scripture just comes right out and says it. He was a permissive father. Two of his, he was the high priest, and two of his sons were priests, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were complete dirtbags. Absolute dirtbags, and yet they were priests. And, and the author of 1 Samuel wants to make it very clear that Eli did not punish them or discipline them, or hold them to account as he should have. And so, as you read through this, it's, it's hard to miss the point that we are being introduced to really powerful women and really weak men. That we're being introduced to, to, to women who are strong and who are praying and who are godly and who are sacrificial and who are committed and we're we're introduced to basically permissive men, even men who are in positions of significant authority and prestige, such as being the high priest, as Eli was. So it's fascinating that God would entrust young Samuel into Eli's care when Eli was such a delinquent father, and he was a delinquent father. We're then introduced to chapter 3, verse 1. Let's go there. We're never going to understand the first king if we don't understand Samuel. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. He was young. He was like an apprentice. He would have been 13, 14, 15. And as he's growing older, it says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. Yeah, no duh. We just went through a period of almost half a millennium that is at this point the lowest point in all of Israel's history, that is the period of Judges. I mean, there's just not a lot of prophetic utterance taking place during this time. It was an extremely low point where people were in the high places worshiping Baal, worshiping Ashtaroth, departing from God and doing all sorts of willy-nilly things in departing from God and his covenant. And so the author of 1 Samuel, as he sets the stage, he wants you to know that there was not widespread prophetic revelation in this day. So what happens next is remarkable. A young Samuel goes into the temple and he lays down on his mat and he hears a voice, Samuel. And he assumes it's Eli. And so he rises up and he goes to Eli the priest. He says, yeah, you called for me. And Eli says, I I never called for you. Oh, I I thought I heard a voice. Okay, he goes in, lays down again, and he hears a second time, Samuel. Oh, he thinks, ah, Eli's playing a trick on me. So he rises up again and goes in and said, yeah, Eli, what is it? 
Eli was his carer, the one that he'd been entrusted to by, by both God and his mother Hannah. He said, I, I didn't call for you. Surely you called for this. This is the second time. No. He goes back in and lays down again, and Eli has said to him, if you hear that again, that is the voice of the Lord. And this time it's not just Samuel, but Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, here I am, Lord. And all of a sudden, Samuel goes from being a nice young boy to a prophet in Israel, something that Israel hasn't seen on this scale since the time of Moses. Now, I just want to send a shout out to my young people that are in here. Notice that God bypasses Eli, the religious guy, the religious old man, with all of his wisdom and with all of the stature that he would have possessed in the community. God bypasses him and gives the gift of prophecy, which had been through this long valley, almost completely absent from Israel's uh, landscape, and he gives the gift of prophecy to a young man. Can the church say amen? He would have known a fraction of what Eli knew theologically. He would have had a fraction of the experience that Eli had. He would have known very little of what Eli would have known in terms of intellectual and experiential and theological knowledge, but God bypasses all of that for a variety of reasons that I don't have time to get into here, but God goes and says, just give me one godly young person and I will get my people back on track. Give me one godly young person and I'll get my people back on track. And I'll tell you, one thing that I'm really thrilled about, something that's happening in, in our, in especially sort of 15 to 20 year olds in this church, and I only say that age not because it's a hard demarcation, but because I have access to them every Sabbath at Sabbath school. But I do see, and I hope I'm not just being optimistic here, but I am seeing what I consider to be the stirrings of the spirit amongst God's young people. I sense that there is an increased sobriety, uh, that, that, there's a, that there's a sense of, hey, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't just about my, my parents' religion. It's not just about going to church. Maybe there's something to all of this, and especially as we've been studying through Scripture, now we're going through Song of Solomon. I think both myself and, and Samuel and Carl are seeing the, 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 the sort of early rumblings that maybe God is on the verge of reviving our young people in this church. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? Wouldn't it be something if God just bypassed all of us old 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds? Not that we don't have a role to play, but what if God raised up leaders and elders and beautiful people in this church? People that would take this church, they would be at the, they would be at the vanguard of the arrow. They'd be at the tip of the, of the point. From our 13, 14, 15, 20, 21, wouldn't that be something? I think God could do it. And we have every biblical reason to believe that he will. I love this. So a prophet is raised up. There's the praying mother. Yes. There's the godly mother. Yes. But here's the young boy. Doesn't know everything, right? But, but he's open. He's willing. And he's, he says, I will be God's man. Here am I, he says. And that's all our young people need to say. Here am I. Here am I. Chapter 4, we're not going to spend any time on. In fact, we're not going to spend any time on 4, 5, or 6. This is where the ark is captured. And uh, the ark is taken by the Philistines. The Philistines become, through the latter part of Judges and all of 1 Samuel, really the ark enemies of Israel. These are the ones that are continually on the scene. We've spent time with the Amalekites. We've spent time with the Ammonites. We've spent time with the, time with the various tribes of the Canaanites, but now it's the Philistines, right? The, the, the great Philistine warrior Goliath is just a few chapters away. It's, it's Philistines, 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 again and again and again. And the Philistines capture the Ark of God. They take it away. Eventually, when a rather funny thing happens to them, uh, probably not funny to them, but quite funny to me to read about it, um, they send the Ark back. They're like, man, we, this, thing is, this thing is cursed. And they send it back. And then we land in chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 1. Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of, of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer to keep the ark of the Lord. And did, didn't put it back in the temple. They put it in Abinadab's house. Verse 2, so it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim for a long time. It was there 20 years. 
And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You know that something is fundamentally broken in Israel if the most sacred piece of furniture, the very piece of furniture upon which the mercy seat sat and the two covering cherubims in between which the Shekinah glowed, that 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 piece of furniture is not where it belongs. It's like in some guy's garage, right? Hey, hey, where's the ark? Oh, it's in Abinadab's garage under a tarp. You know, like, what's going on here? Something is fundamentally broken in Israel. Verse 2, uh, verse 3. So Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel and said, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, Samuel's a grown man now. He's not only a prophet, he's now coming into the role as a judge and a priest. And he turns his attention to the people and he says, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts and put away these foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, Uh, from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Ashtoreths were little figurines of a Canaanite goddess. And they put these little idols away. And look at verse five. And Samuel said, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. Why is Samuel such a strong, why is he presented to us as such a strong man of prayer? Okay, this is an easy answer. Because his mother, the most important and significant influence in his life other than God, was a godly praying woman. This is not to say that fathers don't have a role to play. We live in an age today in all first world countries where absentee fathers are epidemic. Absolutely epidemic. So, so this is not to suggest that fathers are unnecessary or that they're somehow obsolete or, or not a central part of the family unit. Of course they are. But there's something about the mother. There's something about the mother. We've mentioned before that the woman's body with a uterus and with breasts and with a, with a, a connectivity, she is built for connection. In those early formative moments, even we know now the prenatal moments, the attitude of the mother and the way she carries herself and the way she eats and the things she smokes or doesn't smoke or drinks or doesn't drink and the way she conducts herself, she is, as it were, literally taking her life and pressing it into the soft, waxy mold of her son or her daughter. So yes, the the, the husband does have a contribution to make, but I would even go so far as to say that the father's contribution, though significant and though in some ways equal, begins in earnest later in the development of a child. You get to be five and six and older, and then that transition begins to take place, especially with boys, where they want to do boy things, and they want to wrestle, and they want to play in the mud, and touch spiders and snakes, and gross stuff like that. And the mom is increasingly discontent. But if the mom... If the mother, through her warmth and through her love and through those you know, neonatal uh, in utero influences, has, has pressed her mold and the mold of Jesus in her onto her child, that gives, if I could say it, the father something to work with. Now it's like they're working as a team. The mother has her role. The father has his role. Which is why, just as an aside, this notion that you can just take two guys and stick them together and say, yeah, now they'll get married and, and they'll be just as good as a man and a woman. And, oh, no, we'll take two women. We'll stick them together. This massive interchangeability of the sexes. First of all, there is not an iota of social science to suggest that we are not making a colossal mistake. Right? We, all of the social science that we have clearly communicates that the best possible scenario for any child is a loving home with a mom and a dad. We know this. This is every bit of social science that we have says that dads are not, ansel- that dads are not, uh, 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 cannot be just absented from the process of parenting. And mothers obviously cannot be absented from the process of parenting. And we know that the synergistic connectivity of the heterosexual union between a man and a woman, when they come together, there is a unique contribution that maleness brings. And there is a unique contribution that femininity brings. And that, that magical, wonderful, mystical, spiritual, godly connectivity between masculinity and femininity produces something that cannot be produced any way else. Not only biologically, which just is like a no-duh, but, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. If you want to read a marvelous book on this, I challenge you to read the book called What is Marriage? by Ryan T. Anderson, a young man absolutely brilliant in his philosophical understanding and underpinnings of marriage. 
flies in the face of much of the, what we're hearing today. But in, in just a period of about three decades, the world is trying, not all the world, fortunately, but much of the world, including my own country, is just deciding to toss millennia, millennia of wisdom and social, and not millennia of social science, but years, decades of social science and millennia of wisdom aside in the name of some newly fabricated equality. I want to tell you something. There is a contribution that only the woman can make in the life of a child, and there is a contribution that only a father can make in the life of a child. And it doesn't mean that God can't make up the difference in the absence. Of course, he can. God can work miracles. He fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. But in the ideal scenario, the woman makes her impress, and the man makes his impress. Why is Samuel revealed to us as a man of prayer, a man of conviction, a man of power, a man who could stand on the same kind of level as a Moses and a Joshua, a man who could be a prophet, as if that that's not a high enough office. A man who could be a priest? As if that's not a high enough office. A man who could also be judge? Where do these men come from? They come from godly mothers. Can the church say amen? Man, I'm just fired up about this. Now, Samuel says, I will pray for you. I will pray. Chapter 8. In chapter 8, we are introduced to the single word that taps us into the heart of 1 Samuel. A single word. For certain of you who struggle to stay awake, won't mention any names. Daryl. You can get the whole sermon in a single word. So wherever he's at, Jenny, just tap him and tell him oh, this is the word and then he'll get it he can go back to sleep. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass when, Samson, uh, excuse me, when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. These were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. This is a remarkable verse. And frankly, it's, it's once again an indication that the author is trying to make a point that the men as fathers were largely blowing it and the women were largely succeeding. I mean, even this great towering peak that we're talking about here, Samuel, the text tells us was not a great dad. It's amazing. We're, just, we're presented with these powerful women and these permissive men. Verse four. All the elders gathered together and came to Samuel and Ramah and said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a what? A king. Make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. He took it personally because he thought, what, a priest isn't good enough to judge you? A prophet's not good enough to judge you? He felt personally insulted and so God responds in verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and everything they say to you, for they have not, and here's the single word, rejected. That's the word. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt up to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them that be, the behavior of a king will reign over them. And God basically goes on to say that tell them that this is what it will be like when the king comes. It will be a nightmare. He will have servants and he will want 10% and he'll take some of your grain and he'll want some of your children. And he basically paints a picture and says, you think you want a king, but you don't know what you want. It's a little bit like that impetuous child that says, but I want a whatever, fill in the blank. And you as the parent know, this is not what you want. This is not going to be good for you whether it's a piece of cake. I just have to have this piece of cake. It's only my third one. Or this toy that you can just tell is an absolute piece of junk made in China and is going to be broken and worthless. And I just got to have it. I got to have it. And you can try to explain to them, like, this is not going to be good for you. You're not going to like it. Trust me on this. I'm the parent. I see what you don't see. But they're just so like, wah, 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 wah. and sometimes, though rarely, the best thing to do is to give that child the thing that they think they want so much so that they can become disappointed. 
right? And so God says, give it to them. We're then introduced in a strange sort of way to this man who's going to be their king. And funnily enough, he's chasing after donkeys. He's looking for donkeys. He's a donkey of a man himself, and he's out looking for donkeys. That's just how we're introduced to him. Chapter 9. In chapter 10, after he meets Samuel, he is anointed as the king, the first king in Israel, something that, that, that God had never wanted. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 10. We're, we're getting now down to the Saul part and, and bringing this uh, to a close. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then the Spirit of the Lord, this is Samuel speaking to Saul, will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man, speaking of the fact that he would meet prophets on the way and that he would have the Holy Spirit come upon him. Now this is a key here. And if you're not a careful student of Scripture, you're going to miss this. Verse 7, let it be when these signs come upon you that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. So he begins to prophesy like some of these other prophets. And verse 8, verse 8 is a verse you might just easily miss if you weren't attentive to Scripture. Verse 8 says, you will go down before me to, and what is that word there? What is that word? Gilgal. I'm guessing that to 97% of us in this room, that means basically nothing. When Samuel says, go down to Gilgal, and uh, there you will, I will come to you, and then we will offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, I've anointed you here. It's a private thing. A few people know about it, but we will make the official proclamation at Gilgal. Now, just by a raising of hands, I'll be curious to see, does, does anybody have any, just an initial hunch as to why that might be significant? You don't have to tell me. Just raise your hand if you have any idea. Okay, got one, maybe? Maybe two? Okay. We'll see why in just a second. Verse 9, so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart, and those signs came to pass that day. So we're introduced to Saul. Frankly, Saul doesn't have much going for him, aside from the fact that he's tall, dark, and handsome. That's the short version of Saul's description uh, as to why he should be the king of Israel. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He looked like a king. He looked like a kingly kind of guy. And there were some tribes that were still sort of like, what, Saul? Saul, the son of Kish? Are you kidding? This guy's a Benjamite. They're the smallest of the tribes. And there were some people that were like, no, dismissive of Saul. They had their own king-like man. They had their own, own tall, dark, and handsome guy. And then something happens in chapter 11 where this guy named Nahash shows up and he begins to encroach upon Israel and Saul becomes aware of it and he, he sends out a very strong message to the children of Israel and says, if you don't rally around me, then we're going to be defeated and God is with me and, and like 300,000 men or 360,000 men rally around Saul. They win a decisive victory and he sort of now became, he was winning the election. Not only was he the Benjamites' favorite, and not only had he been anointed by Samuel in private, but, but now he's won a decisive victory, and he begins to make his way after the decisive victory down to Gilgal. Look at the last verse of chapter th- 11. Last verse of chapter 11. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly, all except one, Samuel. Samuel certainly would not have been rejoicing because Samuel knew good and well that this was deeply painful to the heart of God. Samuel was, like Moses and Joshua before him, uniquely connected to God. And so while all of Israel is like, yes, we finally got a tall, dark, and handsome king like those other nations, this guy, man, he's a butt kicker. Did you see him in that last battle? He went in there and he was thrashing people left, right, and center. Woo! But here's the remarkable thing. They're more than a half a millennium away from when they had crossed the Jericho under the leadership of Joshua and had camped for years and years and years to begin their conquest of Canaan under King Jehovah at Gilgal. And here they are. 500 plus years later, completely beset by a foreign nation, the Philistines. This is their land. 
kicked out of their own land and camped as it were, not totally kicked out, but having been harassed again and again in their own land and, and right back where they had been 500 years plus before at Gilgal. The problem is they anticipate success. Oh, we've got a king, but guess what? If you can't occupy the land with King Jehovah, you will never occupy the land with King Saul. God, in a most wonderful, redemptive patient way has brought Israel over a period of some 500 years back to the very same shore on the east side of the Jordan where they had taken Jericho and where they had taken Ai and where they had begun to to commence their taking of the land. And here they think, oh, we're starting fresh. And God's like, you're not only not starting fresh, we have been here before. You see, God's plan was never that they have a king, and it was never that they be continually harassed by these nations, but they had abandoned God's plan A, and I want to talk about that. Go to chapter 12, chapter 12. We'll pick it up in verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, A king will reign over us. Now look at this verse here. When the Lord your God was your king. The tall, dark, and handsome donkey of a man gets the nod over Jehovah. Verse 13, now therefore here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. God used to be your king. He has now abdicated the throne, as it were, and he has given you the king, the desires of your hearts. If you fear the Lord, verse 14, and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. Jump down to verse 17. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great. And that you have done this great wickedness in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourself. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain as a sign that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. That's why I said it was, it was only Samuel that wasn't rejoicing. Verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for us. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to our sins this evil of asking a king for ourselves. Look at verse 20. Then Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. You have done all of this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Verse 23, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I would sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart and consider the great things that he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Man, this guy, he just can't stop praying. Because he knows that there is nothing else he can do. That's how I feel in the world today. You know, tomorrow I'm going to be in two big airports, Sydney and San Francisco. And and every time I travel, I don't know if you have the same experience. Maybe it happens to you at different times. But every time I travel, I think to myself, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of airports around the world. And they're all going somewhere. And their life is no less meaningful or less important to them than mine is to me. I just read recently that at any time there are as many as one to two million people in the air. In the air, in planes. And I just think to myself, everybody's going somewhere and and it's really important for me to go where I'm going. And I'm sure that every other person that's going somewhere feels that their trip is very important and they have to be going somewhere. And when I think about all of these people and all of these airports that are going somewhere, sometimes it happens to me when I'm in traffic and I just think, How are all of these people going to hear the gospel? How are all of these people going to be exposed to the true God who loves them with every ounce of his being, who gave up his own existence that they might be saved? How are these people? And I I begin to be overwhelmed because I think, what can I do? I need to, and I need to preach more, and we need to have a media ministry, and we need to produce more things, and I need to write more stuff, and ah! 
and I freak out. And then I just feel Jesus say to me in those moments of anxiety, in those moments of, of stress over a world that is wasting away, just say to me, you don't pray half as much as you should, David. Why all the anxiety? You don't, the most important thing you can do as a minister of the gospel, David, is to be praying. It's not just to be preaching. It's not just to be writing. It's not just to be blogging. It's not just to be visiting. All of those things have their space. But, but, but I tell you, I am a terrible prayer. It's the great weakness in my spiritual journey. There have been moments of, of strength in prayer, but then there'll be long periods of, of struggle in prayer. And not that I don't pray, but I just struggle in prayer. Maybe you're one of those guys. And I tell you, I need a revival in my own life of prayer. Here Samuel's at his wit's end. All of Israel has lost the plot. It's like God and Samuel are standing alone. And, and Samuel says, look, all I can do is pray. Where did he learn that? See, when she was at her wit's end, all she could do was pray. Do you have a a difficult child right now that just will not come right? Maybe Maybe you've read books. Maybe you've attended seminars. Maybe you have pled with them. Maybe you've tried the hard disciplinarian route, or maybe you've tried the lenient route. But maybe the most important thing that you could do is pray. Have you lost your job? We've got people in this room right here who have lost their job. And not one or two or three, but quite a few. People who are, who are needing jobs. And listen, I'm not suggesting that you don't put your resume out there and you don't do the hard work and the hard yards of getting out there. And yes, I, I hear that. But, but, but don't, in the midst of all of that, don't neglect what might be the most important thing. Pray. Has that test come back positive that you just thought, would be negative. We know that happened with our dear sister Summer. We're holding the beautiful uh, Sunday, sum, summer for, uh, Sunday for Summer next, or, uh, day after, or next week from tomorrow. It's like, man, you're just sure it's going to come back. And then it comes back positive and you think, what? It's everybody else that gets cancer. It's not me. How come? Uh, I'm not the one. And listen, yes to the, yes to the, yes to the, yes to the treatment and the doctors and all of the contribution that they bring But at the end of the day, beloved, when you are at the end of the end of the end of your rope, Samuel was just like. (laughs) It was nothing. And he said, be assured of this, that I will not sin against God in ceasing to pray for you. I want to appeal to my church, pray. Pray, pray for your children, pray for yourselves, pray for this church, pray for your pastor, pray for your community, pray for your country, just pray. And remarkable things might happen, but here's the point, even if they don't, remarkable things will happen in your life. All right, so we're basically at the end here. Saul is anointed as king. Everybody thinks he's great. The problem is that he starts winning wars and people think, oh, this is just what we wanted, this tall, dark, and handsome gladiator, this Russell Crowe of a man slaughtering Philistines, Ammonites, Edomites, Zeboites, and, you know, he's just harassing them, it says in 1447, all over the place. And then we get to 15... And there were these people called the Amalekites that going all the way back to the book of Exodus had ambushed the children of Israel when they were fleeing Egypt, when they were at their very weakest. This is hundreds and hundreds of years before. And the record of their sin and the record of their taking advantage of Israel comes up before God and God says, okay, it's time to recompense on the Amalekites what happened, what they did to Israel. And God says, go there, and we've already dealt with some of these difficult passages, and slaughter them completely. So, Saul goes there. He's been, you know, a Russell Crowe figure for the last, you know, s- you know several years. And so he gets in there, whoosh, 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 starts slashing and doing his thing. And uh, the problem is, is that he leaves the king alive. And he leaves all the goats alive. He leaves everything alive because he thinks, yeah, yeah. And, and Saul, man, as you read the story, the guy is such a mealy-mouthed 
politician. He is such a wuss. He is such the opposite of Samuel. I don't know if Samuel was a short, fat, bald, round guy. That's how I imagine him, just being like some little, like, Danny DeVito-looking guy, but powerful in the Lord. And then, you know, you got Saul, who's this, like, Russell Crowe figure, you know, tall, dark, handsome, looks like an NRL player, but he's a complete marshmallow. He's just nothing. He's a mealy-mouthed politician. Every time something happens, he blames it on somebody else. And here, the prophet Samuel approaches him and says, hey, Saul, what are you doing? He says, oh, just returning from doing the work that the Lord has commanded us. And Samuel says to him, hey, listen, if you did what God told you to do, then how come I hear the bleeding of sheep? And how come I see King Agag there? And Samuel, Saul says, oh, the people. Oh, it was the people. Samuel wasn't having it. Verse 22 of Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. He says, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness and iniquity as, and idolatry. Because you have, here it is again, rejected the word of the Lord, here it is, he has also rejected you from being king. Hello, Saul. Goodbye, Saul. This is how the only, the only reference to Saul in the entire New Testament, this is it. And notice the ease with which Paul moves to and through the story of Saul. He gives him a lot more time than I have this morning, or a lot less time than I have this morning. Acts 13, 20. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. That's it. Yep, then there was this guy, Saul the son of Kish, and God removed him. That's it. Therefore, he has rejected you from being king. Verse 26, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And the last verse for our study today, look at the last verse of of chapter 15. Man, this is a tragic verse. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Samuel couldn't bear, Saul couldn't bear to look Samuel in the face because he knew that Samuel and God were like that. He never saw him again. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. That means he prayed. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What does that say? The Lord regretted it? Same thing it says in verse 11, where Jesus actually says, Jehovah actually says to Samuel, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from following me and he has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and Samuel cried to the Lord all night. Man, look at this guy. He's a giant. Always praying, always ready. So here we are. There is the first 15 chapters of Samuel Samuel, in a word. They rejected God as king. Saul rejected God as, uh, as, as the Lord of his heart. And so God rejected Saul as king. And he says, I'm grieved. I wish I never would have done that. And I want to say this. Here's the takeaway, one of the takeaways for us. God can work with your plan B. God can work with plan C. God can work with plan D. Let me give you a good example. You might be a divorced person and now you're remarried. Okay. God hates divorce and therefore remarriage is always plan B. Okay. Unless it's because of death or something. So, so you might be here today as a newly married person. Maybe you're on your second marriage. Maybe you're on your third marriage. Maybe you have a child out of wedlock, okay? All of those are plan B or C or D or E or whatever, okay? Now, let's be clear. God's plan wasn't for Israel to have a king. But he could work with it. But here's the drama. Those plan Bs and those plan Cs and those plan Ds are always harder on us. God will work, work with your plan Z. God will work with your plan X. God will work with your plan Y. 
but all the pain that we incur from C, D, E, F, G, H, I. Saul got off to a great start, but he showed himself to be rash, ridiculous, and rebellious. The good news is, though, that a good, or the, the bad news is, is that a good start doesn't guarantee a good finish. But the converse is also true. Neither does a bad start necessitate a poor finish. Can the church say amen? Doesn't, doesn't mean, you finish bad doesn't mean you have to start bad. And I leave you with two New Testament promises. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this thing, of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion, carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Saul started strong and finished weak. Contrasted with Samuel, this towering man, the prophet, the priest, the judge, he started strong. How did he start strong? A godly, praying mother. And look at this, last verse. You got it. You made it. We survived. I stayed in here. Didn't have to run to the restroom. We did it. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Notice that the pioneer is the initiator, the first, and the perfecter is the, is the close. He starts it and he finishes it. Good start, good finish with Jesus. Good start, good finish with Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He scorned its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, two takeaways. The world owes an inestimable, incalculable, incommunicable amount to godly praying mothers. Can the church say amen? And godly praying fathers. And I want to challenge, I want to plead, I want to, I don't know what to say. I've already said it. Pray. That's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, God will work with your souls. He'll work with your plan B's. And he'll work with your plan C's and D's and E's. But all the pain to Israel and all the pain to Samuel's heart, and all the pain to God's heart. We can do this the hard way, and God will never leave us and never forsake us, but we make it so much harder on ourselves. Better to start with Jesus, to stay with Jesus, and by his grace, to finish with Jesus. Father in heaven, We don't want to reject you. We don't want to be rejected by you. And we don't want to reject anything that you say is for our best good. Father, you were a far better king than Saul could have ever been. But they wanted something so badly. They needed that new shiny toy. That flashy new 2016 model. They had to have it. And when they got it, they found that they were soon thereafter deeply disappointed. Father, thank you for not always giving us the desires of our heart because if we got everything we think we wanted, we would be miserable creatures. Father, the prayer of my heart is that for every one of us is that you would change our desires so that we would desire what you desire and when we get the desire of our heart, we would be getting you. And Father, I pray for a revival of young people in this church. Father, give us some massive spiritual awakening, a tectonic movement amongst the 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, early 20-year-olds. Father, give us, give us revival. Give us godly praying mothers. Give us godly praying fathers. Not these permissive, wussy, wimpy men that we keep encountering in Scripture with giant biceps and no moral uh, strength at all. And Father, at the end of the day, give us a passion for the plan A so that we can be saved the pain and the embarrassment and the humiliation and the struggle of plan F, G, S, T, X, Y, and Z. Father, we know that you will never leave us. Strengthen us so that we, by your grace, may never leave you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen.